DSC is a team of 33 people across Australia, all working together to bring specialised training and consulting expertise to providers in the disability sector. All right, here's what's going to happen now. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We are DSC. Your turn, you're the boss. Disability Disability done different, candid conversations. Hope you are ready because we're starting. Welcome to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations. Welcome, Evie, to the studio. Hi. And today we've got Faye Lawrence, the inimitable Faye Lawrence. We're very excited to have her here because we've worked with her a bit Hello. over the years. Hi, Faye. Hello. Thanks for having me on, guys. Faye's an experienced marketing comms engagement professional. She's got bucket loads of experience working for nonprofits in the disability sector, including sometimes with DSC, with those nonprofits. And she's one of those people who makes the ideas that keep her up at night come to life. It's something we love about Faye. That's one of her big gifts. And we're going to talk about a few of those ideas that have come to life today. Faye's one of those people who always gets stuff done. And you've held so many different jobs in so many different organisations, Faye. How come you haven't been able to hold down a real job? <laughs> well, I think we'll get to that in the course of this podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we might touch on that later. Um, but, yeah, I'm still hoping. <laughs> so let's start with one of those projects of yours, one of your uh, most loved brainchilds, if you can choose a favourite. Faye, tell us about the journey to creating Untoxicated. Okie dokie. So, um, I've always been a really social person and um, someone that has, uh, you know, had a wide group of friends. uh, But, uh, you know, uh, along the way, I was a a very heavy drinker. Um, Alcohol was very much part of that social um, connection that I had with people. Um, And eventually in 2017, I needed to give up drinking um, because it, it had gone out of hand. Um, and when I uh, was in sort of fairly early sobriety, one of the things that actually kind of terrified me about giving up alcohol was the social piece, because I was like, well, what does this mean for my social life? It, it's it's going to be, you know, how am I going to get the connection that I need and the friendship that I need and the belonging um, without alcohol in the mix? Because that's what I'd always Um, how I'd always socialised. And so I decided to um, set up something that I couldn't find that was out there, which was an alcohol-free social community that allowed people to catch up and do fun things on a Friday or Saturday night, um, but without necessarily kind of admitting that you had a problem with alcohol. You didn't have to be sober full-time. You didn't need to come in and kind of say, hi, I'm, you know, I missed that or the other, whatever label you want to put on your um, status with alcohol. So what we found quickly was, you know, lots of people were coming for heaps of different reasons. Um, but the, 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 you know, the, the, and they weren't all because they had a problem with alcohol. Lots of people were kind of choosing that avenue for wellness or for their mental health or, you know, all sorts of things. But what quickly happened was it grew and grew and grew. Um, I had a segment on the 7.30 report and then we quickly moved. I'm based in Brisbane, so that's where the first group started. We then moved in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, so we're now the largest alcohol-free social community in Australia. Um We've got about 9,000, 10,000 members. And, um, yeah, we just do things that other people would do on a Friday or Saturday night or during the day. Um, because what we know as well is that 
uh, people, when they give up drinking, the research shows that actually that peer pressure of being around other people who drink, who then pressure them to drink, causes them to slip back into destructive um, drinking habits. And equally for people who don't have a problem with alcohol but want to move away from that and don't want to drink, they equally experience the same pressure. So what happens is either people are sort of coerced into drinking when they don't want to because of that pressure or they isolate, they stay at home and lose the connection they have with other people. So, you know, mm. that was that was um, what I set out to do, not kind of realising that that's what I was doing. And, um, yeah, it's really, really helpful for people when they're trying to make behavioural change. It's awesome to see how successful you've been with uh, Intoxicated. But before our conversation today, we were reflecting on um, a conversation that we had before some of the media you were doing around Intoxicated. Yeah. And I remember the conversation was that you were kind of almost warning us that you were going to have these conversations because you were going to be telling stories that um, had taken place in a time when you were working at DSC and you were concerned about what people might think, which is just interesting to think about that even in our sector, which exists to support support people, um, you know, who will often also experience addiction, that that stigma can still exist. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think that, I mean, and I know because I coach clients now, um, that there's a huge amount of shame and stigma. And I think that's because the narrative is around alcohol. And this is across the board. It's not just the sector, but it's around the narrative that it's a personal or moral failing as opposed to a health issue. And or a criminal, if you know, if you're talking about drugs. Um, so I think, um, you know, that really weighs heavily on people. And actually, you know, the research shows, again, that it prevents people from help seeking. Um, so in the particular situation that you're talking about, Evie, I remember it was the first time that I'd spoken publicly about it and it was on national TV. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> right in at the deep end. Um, but... You know, I was absolutely terrified. Um, I thought, A, I didn't want it to reflect badly on DSC or your clients or, you know, the clients that I'd work with. And honestly, when I did that ABC, that, that 7.30 report interview, I thought I'd probably never work again um, mm. because I was like, well, who's going to hire me? Now this is out on the public record. But I just thought it was something that needed to be said. It needed these experiences have to be shared because otherwise we don't break the stigma, you know, and we have to go, this is what an alcoholic or someone with an alcohol use disorder looks like. They don't look like the um, stereotype necessarily. There's lots of us out here experiencing this. And unless sort of people come forward and share those stories, I think um, we're never going to break the shame and stigma that prevents people from getting the help that they need. So, so Faye, I find myself thinking, I know we're going to talk about neurodiversity a little bit later on, but I wanted to talk to you about, I'm personally really struggling with a lot of the um, issues around neurodiversity because of my relationship, personal relationship to it in lots of different ways. Okay. And I, I just wonder when neurodiversity becomes so common that it's no longer a diversity issue because so many people are impacted by yeah. it. And I, like you, have addiction problems, and I've had them all my life in, in, in with different um, substances. And I gave up drinking a, um, two and a half years ago, and 
even the way we talk about stigma around alcohol and alcohol addiction, it's almost us about. Surely the stigma um, is it's a positive thing when we acknowledge that we're part of a continuum that everybody's part of and that some of us struggle more with it than others and you know labeling a bunch of people and putting them in a category doesn't seem to work am, am i just mumble fucking my way through this podcast no not at all you make a very valid point and i think it's one that people don't really um you know understand until obviously they do have some kind of lived experience with it i think that people you know, and, and this is sort of largely perpetuated by things like AA, not that I'm not anti-AA, but that is, I think, believe the origin, where people think I'm either fine or I'm an addict, yep. whereas yep. actually yep. it is a yep. continuum. Yep. Um, so alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder, you know, you are often, even if you're drinking over the recommended guidelines, I mean, there's no safe amount of alcohol. I'm not anti-alcohol at all. I think people should have informed choice about whatever they want to do with their bodies. But, you know, the reality is even if you're at the the other end, you're still on the spectrum of alcohol use disorder if you're drinking over the recommended guidelines, you know, and those are messages that people don't want to hear. Um, and that's okay. Yeah. And so that's why I intentionally with Untoxicated made it a non-threatening, playful, sort of positive uh, thing so it was less threatening to access. It's sort of like you're in or you're out, and it, not, it, not, it doesn't work in either circumstance. You're not in or you're out, but okay. you're not necessarily an alcoholic or not an alcoholic. You know, I was drinking too much alcohol and I was stuffing up significant aspects of my life. Does did that that makes me part of the in or out club? It's just it's it's a nonsense. I, I think it actually speaks to you know common humanity because it's like mental health. You know, you look around and for a long time there's been this whole thing of othering around mental health, that sort of stuff, how it happens to other yeah. people. Yeah. And now we're seeing obviously that changing and everyone sort of going, yeah, I've got a mental health issue. And again, it's on that continuum. You've kind of got the, you know, the the, the lighter end, the headspace end, and then you've got, you know, obviously acute and complex uh, mental health. So, you know, I think when you start talking about these things and certainly my experience is that everyone starts coming out for good work and messaging you and saying yeah I think I've got a problem or they start sharing what's going on in their family and and you know it becomes kind of like this a free reign for people to kind of give some permission to talk to someone else who experiences it and soon you realize that this is wide-reaching this happens to a lot of people <laughs> you know some kind of substance use problem mental health you know, DV, housing issues, all of these sorts of things happen so much more regularly than we actually talk about often. And I think it's ridiculous because it's like this impacts all of us. So why are we stigmatising as though this only happens to other people? And if it hasn't happened yet, there's a chance it might happen. Uh, so, you know, I just think taking that kind of why are we sort of ignoring the elephant in the room that all of us are going to be touched by some of these things. So so one more question. You touched on one of my favourite um, concepts because I find it so baffling, and, and that's othering. Yeah. And so you spoke about the othering of people with mental health. We're currently speaking about the othering of people with addiction. We, we're speaking about the othering of people with neurodiversity. Yeah. But do you have any idea why we do that, why we're so quick to other? I'd say it's probably evolutionary, isn't it? I, I, I always assumed it was evolutionary. I mean, I think from, 
um, you know, from sort of evolutionary psychology, it's certainly around, you know, you have your tribe. That's how we uh, have evolved. Yeah. You've got your tribe and anyone outside of that is a threat. Um, and, you know, again, this is what we see when people break out and stop drinking or they want to try and stop drinking. It's a threat to their social connections, to the their tribe, yeah. because they're doing something different. You know, and you need your tribe to protect you from predators and to forage for food and, to, you know, to keep you alive, essentially. And so I think it's almost like a primal thing of that person over there doesn't belong here. Or if you do something that's different to the group, that threatens your um, membership of that group. Spot on, Faye. I love that. Spot on. Faye, a lot of what you're talking about seems to be about unhelpful narratives. Yeah. Yeah, so one thing that, you know, I've really identified working um, in the addiction space for quite a long time, and it's quite similar to, you know, what I've observed in the disability sector as well, is the power of language and ownership over those language and identifiers, I suppose, slash labels. So, you know, lots of people find the word alcoholic actually incredibly contentious and it's actually not medically, uh, it's not in the DSM. So if you do identify someone who has an alcohol problem, it's not sort of quote unquote medically correct anyway. But some people find that helpful. Other people find that really unhelpful and they want to just say, you know, I had a problem with alcohol. I don't identify with that or I was just drinking too much or I'm a grey area drinker or I'm... You know, there's lots of ways that you can describe that. And I remember when I worked in early intervention as well, there was a whole topic which still rages on around, you know, person first language, disability first language. And my perspective that I always took when I was working in that space is why don't we ask the people that actually this impacts and what works for them? Mm. And what I say to people that I work with um, in the addiction space is find what works for you and anything that's not useful, disregard. So if it's helpful for you to, you know, call, your, call yourself an alcoholic, go for it. If that's not helpful, if that holds a lot of shame, if that doesn't ring true and resonate for you, don't do it. Like no one, you make the rules about how you choose to, you know, think of yourself and speak about the things that you're experiencing in your life. So I don't think that needs to be determined by somebody outside. I think you can kind of use the language that works for you. But obviously it's getting service providers and so on on board with that. Um, but, yeah, I think it can be really unhelpful for people sometimes so that let's let's go there a little bit more Faye you were talking about labels and and a label that you've recently discovered applies to you Mm -hmm. you've recently discovered that you have ADHD can you tell us a little bit about that journey yes so I got the diagnosis at the ripe old age of 48 um and uh, so that was a few months ago now and um yeah it's been quite a journey so far it's been quite an eye-opener sort of the irony that I've worked in a lot of neurodiverse kind of spaces I suppose the service providers and clients and so on um it's kind of not lost on me now that I <laughs> now that I find out that I'm I have ADHD so it's 
yeah, there's been a lot to process. And once again, you know, seeing how hard it is to navigate the system has, has, you know, in the same way that it can be for addiction, in the same way that it can be for mental health, things that um, have happened in my family. Uh, yeah, it's it's a real learning process for me and I'm still not fully, to be honest, in the acceptance phase yet. Um, when I when I first got the diagnosis, um, I burst into tears because of the relief, because now I had an understanding. But the first thing that came into my head automatically was I could have done a PhD by now. And so there's a lot of regret and grieving and, um, you know, for the life that had you known about this earlier, had there been support earlier, you know, it would have massively changed your life trajectory. So I, I think we this is something that a lot of people experience when they get di- diagnosed um, is it's kind of like the five stages of, the grieving process until you come to the acceptance point. And I think that's kind of like what I'm in now, which sounds um, kind of all negative, but I just think it's part of that sort of denial, acceptance and flip-flopping between the stages Mm. until you come to the point of like, okay, this is what it is, (laughs) you know, where to from here. So I think there's, you know, I think especially when you get a late diagnosis, there's a lot of retrospectively looking over your life and, understanding things a lot lot better and I you know for example the addiction stuff you know there's um up to 50 percent of people experience substance use disorder um that have ADHD and you say 50 percent huh yeah and the majority the the largest proportion of that is alcohol because of the lack of dopamine in the brain um, and so you're constantly on this dopamine seeking kind of mission without realizing it. And so a lot of people experience addiction. A lot of people experience things like binge eating, uh, gambling, gaming, addic- addictions as well. So there's a there's a very strong link there. And it helps me to understand things like that. But it also helps me to understand the ways that I've struggled um, and it also helps me to understand my family a little bit better because now I'm looking back going, yeah, we are all crazy. <laughs> but also everybody's neurodiverse. You know, I can see now that like all of us are neurodiverse. And <laughs> the other thing is all my friends are neurodiverse. And I have <laughs> no idea. And they're all getting diagnosed now. And a lot of these people are in the sober space, a lot of these people are people that have uh, had problems with addiction. And, um, but, you know, it's the old birds of a feather flop together. I would say probably about 80% at least of my friends are turning out to be neurodiverse and none of us knew that we were. Faye, I'm finding this so fascinating because I have um, been thinking a lot about ADHD mm. um, quite recently, as a matter of fact. And I was thinking sometimes, you know, maybe it's, but you've done a lot of compensations by the time you get a later age ADHD diagnosis. And so therefore, you know, it's it's not that big a deal. And you're really throwing me back a bit to say mm, it is a big deal because it helps explain some of the less um, high-functioning things you've done 
to, you might hear a note, this is for a friend, um, <laughs> less, less high-thinking, um, functioning things you've done to compensate like alcohol. So the diagnosis can be a big deal. Absolutely. I mean, it really is. But I think, uh, you know, it's helped me forgive myself a bit more for the alcohol stuff uh, because it's like, yeah, no brainer, of course. You know, I was a single parent with two small kids and, you know, the overwhelm. Overwhelm is a is a huge part of ADHD. Anxiety usually goes hand in hand. Um, you know, up to 80% of, well, the figures vary, but have a comorbid um, mental health issue or other disability of some kind. So it's, it's, it's massive, you know, in terms of someone with ADHD is usually struggling with something else as well. But also um, it has helped me recognise that, you know, lots of people with ADHD have an internal narrative, a schema, if you like, that they're a failure and that they're lazy. Mm. This is very commonly held by people. And they have low self-esteem because of a, a of continual um, setbacks, I suppose. And like, why can't I, you know, and, and some of the things that I used to say to myself was like, why can't I just do things like everybody else? Why do I struggle with some of these things when everyone else makes it look easy? I don't understand. Like, I know I'm bright. I know I'm capable. What is this sort of happening? But you only know what you know, um, obviously. And so it, it has helped me come to terms with, you know, the reason I haven't been able to do those things and not my fault. It's the way my brain's wired. It's not because I'm lazy. It's not because I'm a failure. It's not because I'm not capable. It's a neurodevelopmental disorder. So, Faye, at the start of this podcast, I, I made the joke about you being unable to hold down a steady mm. job. Um, I, I sort of see that as a badge of honour, but that uh, I'm, not, I'm sort of apologising for the joke and I'll come back to it, but I, I haven't been able to hold down a steady job um, most of my career either. So, And I see people that um, flip between jobs as often the most creative and, and talented people, but you may not have think, thought that was quite as funny as what I thought it was. It's a bit of a sore point because it's 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 not for me. I think it's great. I think, you know, you learn so much by doing contracts, freelance, consulting, being thrown in the deep end. I mean, that's kind of where I thrive. I thrive being thrown into ambiguity and a little bit of chaos. And maybe, you know, you could argue that's why I've been attracted to the not-for-profit sector. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because that has been often um, said with love, often my experience. Um, and that is part of the reason that I love it. But, yeah, look, I think that, you know, I've been told by recruiters it looks bad on my CV. Um, you know, also I've heard, uh, you can just tell with people, people make comments about, oh, you know, she doesn't last long in the jobs because I don't, the longest job I've ever held has been three years, which was actually my entree into the disability sector. Um and the thing is, mainstream work just does not work really that well for a lot of people with neurodivergence. And, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but this is what I'm hearing from the communities that I'm connected with, because, of course, I'm hyper-focusing at the moment and trying to learn absolutely everything about ADHD and, you know, what people do for work and how people um, are able to get the best out of the skills and strengths that they do have. And so I'm kind of on a bit of a mission at the moment to kind of 
define what that looks like. And for a lot of people, it is entrepreneur, um, uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, so, you know, I'm not sure what that looks like for me moving forward, but I think it does speak to, again, the shame that a lot of people and that kind of stigma that a lot of people have held for a lot, long time with ADHD around why can't I just be like everybody else? Why don't I fit into the mainstream? Yeah, yeah. Why can't I hold down a job in the same way that everyone else does because I get bored, there's not enough challenge, there's not enough variety, I can't deal with the politics, you know, blah. Um, and now I've got answers, but I don't have what that looks like moving forward for me just yet. So I'm kind of working. Yeah. I got working that out. I got chills before Faye when you were when you were describing that experience of of not feeling good enough. And I was thinking yesterday I got um, served a video on Facebook of Jordan Steele John talking about a survey that the Greens had done with people with ADHD, yeah. and he mentioned that eighty percent of their survey respondents were women or people who are gender fluid or non-binary. Yeah. And that shocked me because I think sometimes the, the stereotype of ADHD is is men, but so eighty percent at least of their survey were women. And when you talk about that, like not finding finding your place in the workplace and wondering if you're good enough and that kind of like confidence to to own your place and and all of that kind of thing and and then I think about how many of that affects women oh, that just gave me chills I don't have a question just to say that's what I was thinking absolutely and I think lots of women are getting diagnosed now later in life because they did um initially think that it was a childhood um disorder for want of a better word that people grew out of but primarily it was for you know young hyperactive boys and what we know now is that it presents quite differently in women and and, and girls um so or people that identify as, as female so the hyperactivity i'm combined type i'm inattentive and <laughs> i got the double whammy i hit the lottery so i've got the combined <laughs> type um which is the inattentive and the hyperactive but the hyperactivity is quite different in in females because uh, there the, the, there's two types of hyperactivity, and often uh, with boys it is external, with females it can be internal, and so that inner restlessness, like there's a motor going, is is how that can feel a lot of the time for women. But you're always fidgeting. I mean, one of the reasons that I I meant to mention this actually because one of the in the in the leading up to getting the diagnosis was quite some time and thinking about it and so on and I remember sitting in a DSC meeting and it was virtual and we were all on camera this is going back to before the pandemic mm. and when I looked at the replay I could see out of everyone say 20 people in that meeting I was constant I was interested in the meeting but I was constantly looking around fidgeting couldn't sit and it was really noticeable. And again, you berate yourself. You're kind of like, well, why can't I just be paying attention like everybody else? I know this is not the point, Faye, but I, I remember those and I remember you just being a joy to be around. I thought you were going to say, and you were doing your makeup, which was one of the meetings that I remember. <laughs> and it was just like, you're my favourite person in the meeting when you show up like And this that. was long before COVID and people were doing anything weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But you, but I think you um, have this internal narrative. A lot of people do about you know we all want to belong at the end of the day, and this is kind of why why I see some sort of similarity with the intoxicated thing. One of my drivers with that was the belonging, the belonging piece, because you know when you take the alcohol out, people are left floundering, going, "Where do I fit now?" 
And I, I kind of have always felt on the outer to some degree. I've always known that I was a bit different and I haven't necessarily seen that as a bad thing. Like, I think that can be a really positive thing. Who wants to be quote unquote normal anyway, you know, yeah. without being dismissive. So I've always seen it, seen that as quite a positive thing, but there are certain, you know, the, the reality are there is a lot of negative um, outcomes for people with ADHD across all life domains. And yeah, that can be quite hard to kind of stomach really. So we'll ask you one more question, Faith. We we talk to quite a few people on that podcast on this podcast about when the personal becomes professional, and we've we've talked a lot about that today for you. What's it yeah. like to be somebody who talks so much about yeah. some of the things that are really difficult in your life, and and you do that for a living these days? Uh, I find it quite easy because <laughs> I've got ADHD. I love talking. I'm an oversharer. <laughs> <laughs> um I look I think uh with the addiction stuff after some time the emotional charge kind of comes out for uh, out of it a bit mm-hmm. um because you have distance I feel probably more nervous talking about this in many respects because with the addiction stuff it's kind of like yep you're in recovery I'm coming up five years sober that doesn't really impact your life that much moving forward you know it's kind of like the hero's arc yeah you Mm. redeemed yourself you've gone from adversity to this you know great outcome and it's a wonderful story and I can't at this point find that with the ADHD piece and also I feel for me there's more stigma around this in the employment context um than the addiction stuff so uh, the reason I have the conversations is exactly as I was mentioning earlier somebody has to you know and you see that with all the movements around um you know uh, sort of better understanding of the LGBTIQ community the black lives matter the mental health stuff all of these things that we've needed to bring into greater awareness have to be spoken about and some people have to go be the early ones to to have those conversations and I'm not suggesting that I'm necessarily one of the early ones it's just in my journey and yeah I think having those conversations on record just allow people to realize that this stuff happens to many people and it's part of life and it's okay (laughs) it's okay it's okay to be different so Faye let's finish with a a couple of plugs one's you're a freelance marketing communication specialist and I can vouch for the fact that you're fantastic at that you're very Thank good you. at it and you've got some great colleagues that you work with on, on the PR side, so Emma, who, who we love as well. But do you want to give Intoxicated a, a plug as well? Sure. So if anyone um, would be interested at all in any of the socialising without alcohol, the fun and friendship without <laughs> the booze, then go along to um, Intoxicated. It's www.untoxicated, not intoxicated, uh, <laughs> .com.au. I'm also a sober coach or grey area drinking coach. Um, so if anybody uh, would like to talk uh, and just have a touch base and connect about that, 
Um, I've got a website which is Bay with an E, Lawrence with a W.com.au as well there. And um, yeah, marketing and communication stuff is Anthropo. So yeah, tap into any of those. So thank you so much, Faye. That's been um, a little bit unexpected. I always expected you to be fabulous, but fabulous in a different way to what I expected. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Roland. Thank you, Evie. Thank you, Faye. Pleasure as always. Thanks for having me on, guys. You've been listening to Disability on Different, Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. If you like this, please subscribe. We love it when you do. You can do that in your podcast app, but you already knew that. Or you could do it at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.